0: Oh okay, yeah here we go january twenty second uh, two thousand and seventeen lecture discussion number two sixty eight on the book of Romans. those of you on the internet uh, only the most holy are here today. We are buried in snow and cold, and it seems to alternate. We had twenty below and now we got three feet of snow. so that's why we live here uh, because we want the cold, the snow and the darkness okay. As is a frequent occurrence here at the beautiful downtown Cliffside, we find ourselves with a myriad of paths, paths to navigate. That S is tough for me. <sighs> Anything or everything from the specifics of the resurrection of the Antichrist is where we pretty much left off um, before the winter break. Or the solstice break, I guess. Winter solstice, same thing. So the resurrection of the Antichrist, the reasonings of Jerusalem, and I should mention this, I mentioned it to the uh, congregation here. (laughs) That's being being quite liberal when I say the congregation today. Um, if If there are rumblings in the news media that the United States' incoming administration intends to move the embassy to Jerusalem, that will be a significant event. Watch for that, you folks on the Internet. But the subject, that encompasses, that is encompassed by the subject, the why of Jerusalem. Are you visiting? I don't have to start over. Don't wave to the camera. Oops, that's always a good word here, technologically. Are we not functioning? Okay, well, that, that's your fault again, isn't it? Yeah. Oops again, that's two oops. We are, actually, I actually mentioned that today. We have a section of Romans today. Typically, it's 9, 10, and 11, but today it's going to be Romans 3. I have to hide Romans in there every time. It's a Roman study, after all. Uh, but uh, uh, the why of Jerusalem, which is that that's actually... Are you back? Now it works, huh? This will be the highest rated video on the internet because of the... No, it's not. <laughs> okay. The smooth running operation which is Cliffside Community Chapel once again is illustrated. the why of Jerusalem. That's where I was. That includes the war of the of, in the tribulation over Jerusalem, but almost every war, all wars of Jerusalem, is what we discuss when we're saying, why Jerusalem? Why is Jerusalem such a valued area of the world, such a place that all of this turmoil comes? So... Uh, that's where we have, that's where we're, we're, we've got those to navigate, of course, and then we have the sevens, which I introduced last week, God's creation seven. And I should add that I have an outline that I consult every week. I know you don't believe me, but I do, I really do, I can show it to you. And I consult it before I begin composing the next lecture, and I cross out the subjects that I have addressed, and so that I have some kind of cohesive order, which no one notices. And I counted the subjects that I believe are required to satisfy the subject of Revelation 17, Daniel 2, Daniel 7. That's our current locale. There are 29 things, items, categories that I believe demand attention before Revelation 17 can be properly discharged. And each of the 29 will take a couple of weeks at least to eliminate. So we got 58 Sundays to go. That's not bad. That's pretty good. Actually, that's not true because not accurate. We've already uh, sufficiently covered uh, three of those subjects, maybe four. So only a year to go. If I can speed along, pick up the pace. What's the best way to resolve all of these subjects? Ask nobody ever. And clearly the best way to do it is to add more subjects. You think I'm crazy. Yes, I know you do, but that really is the best way to do it. Search out and annex additional seemingly unrelated matters, something that I admit to be an expert at. For example, today, you've probably heard, I hope you've heard, I, I want you to hear, if you haven't, the latest popular monistic slogan or phrase. And by monists, for those of you on the Internet, I'm referring to atheists, atheism people who believe we are strictly physical and when we die, when the physical body dies, when the physical body dissolves, uh, the human mind inside is extinguished forever. That's monism. That is the predominant philosophy in academia today. This is what your kids learn. Uh, constantly they are told that there is cessation, extinction, uh, at death, physical death. Well, they, the monists have a A new popular phrase. And this specific wordage slogan has resurfaced lately, probably because of the recent political results. And I believe that the phrase originates from Hollywood. I think it can be traced back to a television show. Now, the person who wrote that as part of the script for a character likely stole it from somebody Else, But it got prominence, I believe, from Hollywood. And that in itself should provide you with enough evidence to immediately discount its value. But for the sake of needing an excuse or an exercise to delve into philosophical um, pursuits, let's take a quick look-see at it. Uh, Quick is, of course, what? A relative term, right? When I say quick, be suspicious. It goes something like this. I'm going to put it on the board. Um, There might be a trademark violation here. That'll be cool. So it goes something like this. I hope I'm going to do it correctly. Actually, I really don't care if I don't. But here is the slogan, or here is the phrase. If it were possible, it were possible to reason with... Christians, make sure I do it right, there would be no Christians. So there it is. I like looking at your faces and things like this. (laughs) Let me repeat it for the Internet just in case. If, 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 If it were possible to reason with Christians, there would be no Christians. The declared suggestion being that at the precise moment, I worry about that being a little too close. Do you worry about it? Oh, you're giving me something cool. Would you like one in return? Let me give you a different one. This might be second best. I don't want to give you my. I could hit her from here. She had her back turned. That's not a good idea. Ask any of my former students. Now, I don't know which one is good. Where was I? If it were possible to reason with Christians, there would be no Christians. And again, the declared suggestion being that at the precise moment a Christian submits to reason, said Christian ceases to believe in the deity of Christ. Did that follow? Did you see how I did that? As the ones who wrote that will not understand the necessity of the deity of Christ. But what they say is this: that if you were to inject reason into Christianity, Christians would cease to believe that Christ is God, and therefore they assert that there that there are only irrational Christians; that those all who have and any and all who have succumbed to reason, as they define reason, have abandoned uh, their uh, earlier sophistic condition replacing it with the superiority of monism you see and monism is of course hopelessness and meaninglessness purposelessness it is complete uh, it's devoid of any value at all so they're going to take faith and replace it with insanity frankly but that's that's the hypothesis. And obviously this is not contemplative. There's no thought into this slogan. Had they done that, had the person who made this slogan thought about the slogan, the slogan would never exist. How's that? There's an overabundance of error in it. However, the atheist community seldom investigates uh, the doctrines of scripture. Instead, they respond to media stereotypes, as we all know. So they adore this. The phrase, they don't, they don't know that it's conceived by the intentionally uninformed. There are two kinds of uninformed. Some are intentionally uninformed. Important to know the, or the distinction. I read recently where the East Coast media community was uh, hostile to a quite simple survey. They were indignantly sensitive. So that piqued my interest because the, the question seemed relatively benign to me. And it aroused such contempt from the East Coast media, which is by and large all of the media now. The East Coast controls the, the, the rest of the media. But uh, it, it merely was this. Do you know anyone was the survey for media people. So here is a survey given to the media uh, establishment or the media employees of the media establishment. So all of these employees, are, are a large percentage of them, a ratio of significance. Do you know anyone who owns a pickup truck? That was the question. How many of you followed this? Anybody? No. Good. Cool. Something that I did that only I have done so far. That's hard here. Ask any of us that stand up here you're you're difficult to outmaneuver does any do you know anyone they were asked in the media uh, uh cabal or establishment sorry cabal seems to be negative but okay cabal do you know anyone who owns a pickup truck they were asked the premise being that the three most selling vehicles in the United States are unsurprisingly all pickup trucks ford's number 1 vehicle f150 i believe Chevrolet, Silverado, Dodge, Ram, all of them pickup trucks. Those are the models that sell the most. People buy pickup trucks, overwhelmingly. And and that's no surprising, that's unsurprising to us. I say unsurprising because no one in Alaska is shocked by this. We assume everyone in Alaska has a four-wheel drive pickup truck. If you don't, days like this are really tough. I can count pickup, I can count trucks out there. There's a few cars. Don't raise your hand if that, you drove a car in this. Don't do it. No one will ever ride with you again. There are overwhelmingly four-wheel drive vehicles out there, or you didn't get here. Pretty simple. We're not shocked. We assume, like I said, everyone has a four-wheel drive pickup truck and a firearm here in Alaska. It's an anomaly if we discover otherwise. That's how we are. Not so in the East Coast. Not so in New York City, apparently, based on their responses and their reaction. Just take the reaction. The New York media has, they're vociferant over this. The New York media has no contact with owners of pickup trucks. Not one. They're all together. They're all in a group. They're all in a meeting room. No one knows anybody with a pickup truck. Now, that's an oversimplification, uh, perhaps, There might be one guy that has a pickup truck, but he won't admit it in that group. He certainly won't admit that he has a firearm. Right? They are different from us, and understand that. That's an important aspect to be cognizant of when you read what they say and why they love this slogan so much. And I raise that little choice morsel of relevatory information because the companion to pickup trucks is Christian doctrine. And by that, what I mean by that is the New York and Washington, D.C. media do not know any Christians who drive pickup trucks. Put them together, you eliminate the one guy that might have one. They don't know Christian pickup truck drivers. Admittedly, again, that might be a slight uh, overgeneralization. But it's very safe to say the media and their co-conspirators, for lack of a better term, in Hollywood are excessively representative of monistic advocacies. And those advocates are devoid of any knowledge of Christian principles, which is why they would write that. And none of them own a pickup truck. And very few have contact with Christians. I leave you uh, to form the obvious conclusions. Now, that which typically accompanies the presupposition that Christians are idiots, uh, who are bereft of logic, is the attempt to use Occam's razor. So in concert with this kind of stuff, we add Occam's razor. And it can be spelled different ways. Um, you'll see it this way. There's that spell. She left. I wanted permission to use that one some more. How did this one do? Okay. She might have given me a better one. Talk on it. I'll use this one as I have been told. I will submit. Because I am such an easygoing person, so pliant, complying. I, I just do whatever anyone says. Occam's razor is a philosophical axiom. Um, and they use it as a definitive proving force, those who have, again, the belief that Christians are fools. And if we could only reason with these Christians and we'll utilize Occam's Razor, we would eliminate Christianity because it cannot be defended. That's the premise. And again, Occam's Razor uh, is the axiom, the philosophic, philosophical element uh, which proposes the superiority uh, of the simplest explanation. Let me explain that. Occam's Razor says the simplest explanation... When the simple and complex ex- explanations of a question are equal, that you, the simplest ex- explanation would be superior. Did I, did I do that? Well, probably not. Let me try again. Let's try an example. Suppose after a hurricane, a large boat has been found inland on shore. So it is miles inside of the shoreline after a hurricane. You have two causes. Cause one, the wind from the hurricane did it. That's what most people would think. They would make a correlation. Correlations are not causations, but most of us would do that. And that's likely what we would do. But then there's also cause B. And that is, as a multitude of shipbuilders assembled secretly and uh, came together and they uh, built that vessel on dry land for unknown nefarious purposes simulating a natural event both are possible it's possible that a bunch of guys got together said hey let's build a boat make it look like it make it place it here and cause some kind of mysterious response hockham's razor would have us choose the wind because it is the simplest of the two hypotheses Simplest solution is more likely if equality is present, or there is superiority of the simplest proposition. So you, you, you see, the second hypothesis of the shipbuilders being organized, coming in in secrecy of, with no witnesses—that's that's adding additional. It's additionally. I can't even talk. It's addition, additionally. Unlikely. It's unmathematical. It has too many unmathematical probabilities for it to be true. Therefore, Occam's razor would say, discard it. (coughs) Excuse me. But uh, which is exactly why the evolutionists, as an aside here, shun Occam's razor. The mathematics of evolutionary theories are horrifically improbable and therefore must be continually manipulated in order for them to have any viability, And but I rant. Okay, William of Ockham. Here's the usual form of the question to which Ockham's razor is attached. Why is it that the Christian God is indistinguishable from all other non-existent gods? Let me repeat it. Why is it that the Christian God is indistinguishable from all other non-existent gods? Applying Occam's razor would lead to what the monists describe or define as the simplest answer. That being, the Christian God does not exist. Follow me so far? Note immediately how it is that the atheists define reason and logic and simplest answer. Now, before subjecting these to examination... I will concede that the current Laodicean church age that we find ourselves in, slash vomit age, right? The vomit age church of Revelation 3.16 has culpability. The church of today is accused of romanticism. And they are rightly accused of romanticism. And by that romantic passion, whereas 50 years ago, perhaps 75, the church was studious. The church is no longer studious. The congregants of 75 years ago, intent on biblical fact and doctrine, that's what the church did, reinforced the doctrines of the church and defended them. Apologetics. The contemporary church has abdicated its duty to teach doctrine. It is far more profitable, far easier to monetize emotional appetites than, to, than arduous study. And that is the condition and that is what the church is uh, uh, purposely. They have purposely taken this approach. Okay, so keep that in mind. Call that another rant. The Occam approach typically attaches what they think is the Christian rebuttal to their question that the Christian God or God of the Bible is indistinguishable from non-existent gods. And it goes something like this. To say this is the monistic approach using the Occam's razor. And it goes, again, sort of like this. Don't hold me to it. To say the Christian God remains indistinguishable from all non-existent gods in order to foster faith or that he he does not wish to overwhelm human free will is to cling to evolving complications that violate occam's principle what that means is is the response to the christian god is indistinguishable from non-existent gods and therefore is non-existent is to say no god does not show himself because he wants to foster faith in his believers. So the believers, in order to produce faith, are not given any evidence. Does that make sense for you? That's quite common, and in fact, I think it's predominant. The other side of that is that uh, Christians will respond to this approach, that God uh, does not show himself. The question becomes, again, let me try to simplify it. Why doesn't your God show himself? Well, he doesn't show himself, the Christians respond, because he wants me to have faith. That's what they say is our answer. Now, if you hear that answer from Christians, and you will, uh, you need to understand that that is not necessarily well thought. The other thing Christians will say is is that uh, God does not Give us evidence of himself because it will complicate, it will overwhelm our free will. In other words, God is withholding evidence of himself, his existence, for the purposes of sustaining human free will to reject him and to maintain the faith component in his plan of salvation. Everybody's still with me on the bus. It's perfectly acceptable to sleep on the bus. Fear no retribution. (laughs) why do you pick snow days to do these kinds of things you say (laughs) okay quickly the atheist demands that god provide acceptable evidences of his existence now who is to define this word acceptable acceptable to who Note that. The created, the creature, is claiming the authority as to what data is sufficient. God must provide me, the atheist says, the monist says, something that I will believe. He must do it in a way that I will accept. To which I ask, why does God have to do what you want so that you will believe? Also remember the simple prevails if the complex is unequal. Is the complex unequal here? Is it true that God has provided no evidence and therefore He doesn't exist? No, the complex in this case drowns and smothers the simple. It's a deluge of evidence. It's an incredible amount of data. Whether or not it is acceptable to a monist is another entirely different philosophical question. But there is no lack of data. Bill actually talked about data today. Now, do you find that data? We didn't inspire, those of you on the Internet. We never communicate with one another here. And it shows. (laughs) Most of the people that attend church here, once I start into these subjects, go down to the nursery. So they don't even know what we're talking about. The complex in this case, as I said, smothers the simple. And let me offer this. Somewhat recently I addressed the findings that the universe has more than two trillion galaxies. Do you remember that? Two trillion galaxies. Not stars. Two trillion galaxies. Each star containing billions and billions, thousands of billions of stars. And all of this matter, all of this mass is set in motion. And it's governed by laws that defy the human capacity to explain. And we can hardly even describe them. You can do the math later on two trillion galaxies with thousands of billions and billions of stars. That's a lot of material. Is that sufficient acceptable matter? Evidence. Data. Trillions and trillions of things, all in motion. And I have stated often that this is incontrovertible evidence of something. All of that is evidence of omniscience. We are overwhelmed with omniscience in this creation. Only omniscience could accomplish Trillions and trillions and trillions of stars and galaxy combinations. Only omniscience would even consider it. Omniscience necessitates something or someone. You can have no omniscience without a person. So in order to have omniscience, you must have a creator. William of Ockham would unhesitant. he was a Franciscan monk, he was a friar, William of Ockham would unhesitantly choose the obvious over the convoluted alternatives that are made ever more ridiculous by the fact that life exists. Let's let's go ahead. If you you can't accept the data that, that is demonstratively, giving us omniscience, how about the complexity, the irreducible complexity of life, the ambiogenesis, the fact that life has to come from life, there has to be a source. Life exists within a mathematically impossible fine-tuned environment, which is this earth. Anything goes wrong here. Even the slightest bit, life has no possibility of coming to to bear. Again, I say, when you see life, when you see the the trillions of galaxies and the thousands and thousands of billions of material in them, in in each one, that's omniscience. Life itself, your life, is omniscience. Nothing but omniscience can accomplish this. Goodness exists. There's some more data. Altruism. Goodness demands Omnibenevolence. The creation of life, the creation of the universe, demands omniscience. The fact that there is goodness, that demands omnibenevolence, which is goodness. Life must come from life. Goodness must come from goodness. No other source is possible for goodness. Is that sufficient data? Is this reasoned? To the atheist, no. Always no. Never anything but no. You see, only the atheist can be the judge of logic or reason. They define it. And it excludes anything. Except for what they wish to include. How much data is required to convince someone who will never believe that Jesus Christ is God? If one could reason with atheists, there would be no atheists. See how I can do that? See how childish the statement is? How elementary, how vacuous? It is easy to summon meaningless, vapid slogans. For those who will never believe, no proof is possible. No amount of evidence or data is enough. Never believe means never believe. Atheism, evolutionary theories, are designed to be non-falsifiable. Intentionally, purposely uninformed. Okay? Next week, I'll do more on this. I know it's such a big winter. I'm assuming it's going to snow next week. So, more on this later. For today, we have some cleaning up to do. Maybe cleaning is too hopeful. Perhaps rearranging would be more so uh, an appropriate description. Oh, there went a the portion of the lecture that no one will remember. Which is why the beatings will continue. Last Sunday, we ventured into the sevens of the creation pattern uh, of Genesis 1. The earth is in darkness. Darkness is the the emblem of evil, of wickedness in Scripture. Again, against this, the Holy Spirit moves over the face of the waters of the deep. And light, the light of life, strikes the earth. And the light of life is called good. Do you know what uh, that word is used for? It's also called, if you wish to think of it this way, beautiful but for today focus on good where does good come from the bible answers where good comes from and when good got here so there's your answer now the evolutionary monist would say that is simple really well let's endeavor to figure out if it is simple the light of life is called good beautiful Rendered beautiful elsewhere in scripture, God approves of the light of life. Uh, There must be a, a, for every Old Testament verse, there is a New Testament compliment, right? God says he sees the light of life and calls it good. It's good. He approves of it. Where in the Bible does God also approve of the light of life? Matthew 3.17, yes. At the, at the uh, submersion of Christ in the Jordan River. On the first day of the seven days of God. Here's some characteristics. So, first day. And the first day begins on, in the evening. That's how we start. So, the first thing is that the day begins in the evening. And here is what we have. The spirit hovers. The sun comes. Because the sun is the light of life. The father approves. If you didn't know the sun was the light of life you would not know that those three are clearly the triune godhead they are working together in fact it even is it's Elohim which is us so the triune godhead is in motion here next the light is declared to be not darkness Darkness was already there. Obvious question, how did darkness get there? Why was darkness there? What causes the darkness? The light is pure goodness, completely separate from the darkness, and the light is named. There's a naming done here. This is the first time the naming occurs. You might think incorrectly that the first time naming occurs is with Adam and the animals. Not so. The light is named day. And the darkness is named what? Night. So we have names. Are they arbitrary? No, an omniscient being is naming them. Why does he name them this? Understand for right now that they're totally separate and distinct. And this ends the first day. That's day number one of the seven days. Where there had been no life, no light, only darkness, now the triune God was in motion, beginning his seven days. And last Sunday I asked, for whom is the red linen? Do you remember that? For whom is the evidence, the proof of the red linen? What that is a reference to for those of you who might not have been here or on the internet who uh, only skip every other lecture because it's expedient and and difficult to go in order because, well, good grief. should be obvious why that is. The red linen is what Christ brings out of the wedding chapel at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Not him necessarily. We have this debate, we have seven days of creation and we have seven days of the Hebrew or the Jewish wedding system. So here's the wedding and here is the creation seven. And I have said repeatedly and I'll continue that all sevens in the Bible return to the first seven. The first day of the the creation seven is the spirit hovers, the sun comes, the father approves. The light is is declared not to be darkness, completely separate from darkness, the opposite of darkness. There was no uh, light and the light is named day and the darkness is named night. That happened on the first day. I am saying to you now... On the seventh day of the Jewish wedding, the red linen comes out that proves it is proof of something. And I asked last week, when was it given and for whom does it, is to see it? The red linen, of course, um, we would look at it and recognize it in a humanistic way that it is proof of cleanliness. When did the cleanliness happen? Before the seven, during the seven, at three and a half, we know that Satan is thrown to the earth. And I asked again last week, what's the point of waiting to the seventh day to produce the red linen, the proof of the virginity of the bride? What does the virginity, metaphorically speaking, what does the virginity of the bride uh, address? And again, I say that it is cleanliness. <sighs> Who's going to believe the evidence? Who will not believe the evidence? If I have somebody who is watching this that will never believe the evidence, is there any intention of showing the evidence to somebody who will never believe it? And we got into the goats of Azazel, the scarlet and the white, and, uh, and Christ uh, pro- making a proclamation uh, to Tartarus in Second Peter. That's where we were, okay? That's uh, your review for today. The Jewish wedding system has within it the seven days called the seven days of consummation. The seven correspond to the seven days of God, the seven days of creation. To repeat, all sevens return to the first seven. So we can reason, we can logically proceed with the comparison of the seven with the seven. Does that make sense? This is the seven. This is a seven, if you wish. Whenever I'm talking about the seven, I'm talking about the creation seven. All the other sevens have a, have, have a returning component or a uh, congruency. Think of it this way. I'm doing triangles. I have this triangle and I have, well, hang on. Let's make a right triangle so that it'll be easier for you. I have a right triangle, and I have a right triangle, and this angle is equal to that angle, and this angle is equal to this angle, and this angle is the right angle, so that's equal to that angle, and by angle, angle, angle of geometry and geometric principles, I can prove there is congruency. Now, does it mean that they're equal, necessarily? Congruency, I have similarity, and I have congruency. And we'll have to know the difference. This could be this. Are they congruent or are they similar? See the difference? Okay. All sevens return to the first seven. The, on the first day, I can logically, now that I know that that's the case, I on the first day of consummation, I'm going to say it will have similarity to and may have congruency with the first day of creation. And here's where, again, this geometric proof thing that you studied in in Bible class, okay, geometry class, is very valuable to you. Everybody loves proving triangles are similar or congruent. Everybody. There's no exception to that. We all memorize the theorems. It'll be a fantastic day next week going over that. If I'm right... Why do I even say that anymore? But if I'm right, and these are the elements of the first day. The Spirit hovers, the sun comes, the Father approves, the light is not darkness, the light is named day, and the darkness is named night. If that is the first day of the big seven, or the seven, then what can I expect on the A seven, or the little seven? In this case, the consummation week. I could have done the Passover, but I'm doing the consummation. Why is that? Because we're studying the judgment seat of Christ. Why is that? Because it happens at the same time of the tribulation. And things happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. And So I'm asking, if things happen at the midpoint of the tribulation, do they happen at the midpoint of the consummation or the midpoint of the judgment seat of Christ? And if that's true, do both of them, all of them, relate to the creation seven? And the answer is, yes. Easy as cake. Simple as pie. Or simple as cake. Easy as pie. It's one of those. So, first day of consumption. I'm sorry. Yes. Consummation. have got to be careful. It's going to have a relationship to the first day of the seven days of God. Or the seven uh, days of creation. But the seven days of God would be more accurate. So these elements here are going to show up here. I am off the obviously profiting symmetry with the creation seven. The earth was what in the creation seven? Formless and void so i can add that in there it's formless and it's void and it's dark what does that mean it means it's void it's empty it's destitute it's in uh, it's in a high entropy state Chaos. Darkness had consumed the earth. So darkness now owns the earth. It prevails. What's the obvious question? How did the earth get into a condition where darkness now rules it? Has eaten it, if you will. Would God have made it like this? Or did he make it in a condition that was not like this? And it became like this? And if that is your view, what made it become like this? There's only one thing that would make it do that. And that would be the fall of Satan. Ooh, Satan falls. Satan falls. Ooh, and Satan falls. How many times does Satan fall? Three times. So, does Satan have a, a, a responsibility here? The fall of Satan. When was the fall of Satan? I ask this all the time, as you know. If this is all of history, and this is the creation of Adam, I'll put him right here. Right there, this is Adam. When did Satan fall? Before or after? All of those of you who think after, go over here. All of those of you who think before, go over here. That won't take but a minute. There will be no confusion. There are seats on both sides. Uh, Is there anybody that thinks that, uh, that Satan fell after the creation of Adam? doesn't appear there is, or everyone is way too wise to admit it. And they okay, said, so we're going to put Satan here. How far away from the creation of Adam will you put Satan's fall? And then you also have to put Satan's creation. Would you say that the angels, all of the angelic uh, realm, uh, predate the creation of Adam? These are questions that we'll have to resolve, won't we? In any event, if if Satan falls and you put him here, then is he responsible for this formless, void, dark Situation. In which case, how long did it take for the fall of Satan? From the time he was created to the time he fell, how long do you think it was? How much time will you give him? Remember, the entire intent of the Old Testament is to portray the person of Jesus Christ. We're ordered to search for him. John 5 39. It is to be understood as a command. Most translations do not convey the command aspect of John 5.39. and they don't, they don't see it uh, accurately, but I want you to know that. Let me read you the <coughs> corresponding verse in Hebrews 10.7. Christ says this. He's actually quoting uh, what he wrote in Psalm 47. And Christ says, Behold, behold. Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. In the volume of the book. This is a behold. He wants you to know, in the volume of the book it is written of me. So he is the purpose of the book. What book is he talking about? He is talking about the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament... We are ordered to find Christ, and we search for Christ, and we must search for him. We should therefore expect him to be primary. If I could pick one part of the Bible where Christ is going to be absolutely, definitively, he would be the essence of it, uh, he would be marinated in it, where would that be? What would you think it would be? Where would I go where Christ should be incredibly ever-present I would suggest to you that that is obviously the first seven days of God will be about Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you again. The Jewish seven or the judgment seat, what do you suppose it's about? If you say the bride, that would be what we would call a misfocused error. The Bible is not about you. You're in the bride. If you're looking for yourself in the bride, you will find it. But most of the time, you don't look so good. Me neither. We're dirty. The Bible is not about you. It's never been about you. Stop thinking about you. It's You don't matter. These are the lectures you give your children. The Bible is about Christ. And he says it. Let me read it to you again. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. It doesn't say, it is written about Steve. I know. I'm ranting again. He's going to be in those first seven days, isn't he? There's no doubt about it. The light, Christ, the light of life, comes at the darkness. For whom does the bridegroom come? He comes for the bride. Why is he coming at the darkness? What makes him come at the darkness? For the same reason he comes for the bride. You see? What day of the seven days of the wedding ceremony or the wedding system does the bridegroom come for the bride? Please pick one. What day does the light of life come at the darkness? One. So far so good, right? We're starting to see that they will fit together. Not a shock. What time does the bridegroom come for the bride? Let's go ahead and use Roman time, or if we will, let's use American time. What time of the day uh, in an American time, which really doesn't have it doesn't exist, but it's just to make the lecture more friendly because I want to be. I want to be seeker-sensitive and contemporary. And I want everybody to be romantic when I bang. When do our day begin? Midnight. We're midnight to midnight, right? What time in our reckoning does Christ come for the bride? We could do Hebrew time, but let's stick with this. What time do you think? What time does he come for, uh, what time does he hit the earth? What time does he come at the darkness? It tells you. What does it say? It says he comes in the evening, doesn't it? So, he comes first. What, is there light? No, there's darkness. Is he coming for the bride when there's light out or when there's darkness out? And what, what area of the world is he, is he reckoning from? Certainly not Alaska it's always dark or it's always light so what what is the what is the frame of reference the observational point but i'm going to tell you that he's the light of the life the light of life hits the dark void formless earth at the same time that he grabs the bride but i don't know what time that is he told me i wouldn't I can narrow it down. The light that comes to bring life to which is, which is in darkness is called good. Good. God calls it good. That's the triune Godhead calling it good, the father in the role. How does God define good? What is good to God? Nice? Attractive? Have a complex uh, definition of that word. This will take us to the goodness of Christ. Consider the mystery of Matthew nineteen sixteen through 17, which is the rich young Pharisee ruler. And Christ says this. Now behold, one came and said to him. So I'm sorry, uh, this is where uh, uh, Matthew is writing. Matthew says, behold, one. Somebody came to Christ and said this. This is incredible. Behold this. You won't believe what he said. This is amazing what this rich young Pharisee said. Behold, he came and said to Christ, good teacher. This guy came and called Christ good. Who else has called Christ good? Genesis 1-3, God calls Christ good. That's amazing, Matthew writes. Do you realize how amazing that is? And, the, and the, the rich young Pharisee says, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Which is the classic pharisaical error, of course. Salvation is belief-based, not do-based, not work-based. But for today, notice the presence of good in this topic, or in this uh, passage. Christ responds. So Christ said to him, why do you call me good? Do you have any idea what you're saying? I am the light of life. God calls me good. By definition, if God calls you good, what does that mean about you? You? I'll help you. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one God. When God calls you good, you have to be who? You have to be God. Romans three ten through 18, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Pharisees don't understand that. Most of the church doesn't understand that. Okay, 99% of the church doesn't understand that. Christ, why do you call me good? Only God is good. That is why this is a behold. You have to understand why the behold is there, because the Pharisees said good. And that's blind, stupid luck, obviously. Why do you call me good? What's the inferred rhetorical element of that? You don't know why you called me good. You have no idea that I am creator, omniscient God, the the light of life of Genesis 1-3. You're completely clueless. When God calls the light good, we know that the light is God. There's no dispute, no qualifications, no provisions, no addendums. The light is God himself. Discussion ended. So the bridegroom comes on the evening of the first day, which is the beginning of the first day, which is, means it's what? It's nighttime. Why does he come? He comes because he's good. Why is he good? Got to know that. I'll take answers. Why is he good? He can only be good. That's why. It's peccability versus impeccability. John 10:10, 10, 10, "I have come that they may have life. He is coming in the Jewish wedding system so they may have life. Who is they? Raise your hands. We want to be they. He's coming to the earth on the first day at the same time, in my view, because why? To bring life. It's identical. The patterns are the same. They fit together. The bridegroom comes on the evening of the first day, which is the beginning of the first day. If that makes sense, I hope it does. Why does he come? Because he's good and because he brings life. Life comes to the darkness to bring life. Now I'm conflating, I'm intermingling these two events, right? John 10.10, I have come that they may have life. The light is good and separates from the darkness. So I have this separation element here. Why does he take the bride? Why doesn't he leave the bride? Why does he have to separate the bride out from the what? Darkness. That's what he does. The light is doing what the light does. The light is good. And the light separates from the darkness. And the light is called day, which means good. The darkness is called night, which is logical now. we will be logical again, much to the dismay of the monistic community. If the light is good, the day is good, and the darkness is night. What is night? It's the opposite. It's separate from the day. Therefore, it is evil. The day comes to the evil and takes from it. The darkness has consumed the earth, and the night, or the light, comes and takes that which the day, the night, has consumed. The evil comes to steal, steal and kill, and to destroy. John 10:10. The day comes to bring life. The first day of the creation, seven, establishes this foundation. Christ is God. God alone is good. Christ comes to cause life because Christ is good. Darkness comes to steal, destroy, and ruin. The formless void, dark, it also can be translated ruin. The light of life takes from the darkness. The earth is now no longer fully dark. Light has come to it. God has attacked the darkness. You have to see it as an attack. And that's what it is. Now the question is really fast. Did the darkness expect God to attack them? The earth is formless, a void, and is consumed by darkness. Is that the end of the story? Who's watching this? When did this happen? What are they thinking? Take humanity out of it. If Mike was here, he would say, why are we talking about humans? Let's not talk about humans. Who started this problem? Did the darkness expect God to attack? By this I mean, did the angelic realm believe that God would move against the formless void? Did they think God had any options? Was he stuck? And if they thought he couldn't retaliate, why did they think that? Did they think God was defeated? If he's defeatable, he's not omniscient. If he's not omniscient, what do we have? We're doomed. Omniscience is necessary to be what? good you have to be omnipresent omniscient omnipotent in order to be omnibenevolent they are in uh, intris- intrinsic can't be separated did they expect whoever they are i'm going to tell you did the angelic realm believe that god would would uh, be able to re- to do something with his formless void or was he not Was he not omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent? Did they expect the condition to remain? And obviously I've placed the fall of seven into the first seven days somewhere in the sense that Satan is in a fallen state. So I'm not saying he fell in those first seven days. I'm saying that he's in a fallen state. So the fallen state is impacting those first seven days, specifically day one. Did the angels see the light striking the darkness as retaliation? I believe they did. Next week, we shall endeavor to persevere. What am I supposed to say, Terry? Uh, what am I supposed to say? Let's stand and be dismissed. That's the new phrase that starts the time clock on our. Uh, and I forgot it. I couldn't have told you what it was. See what happens? Let's stand and be dismissed.